My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Good morrow, Eumenidites. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater, bringing you another episode of Euripides Eumenides, a theater history podcast. What a milestone. 75 episodes, and here we are. And as of this past weekend, I have been recording episodes for over three years now. Tempest Fujit, am I right? But speaking of time, I want to get right to the episode today as we get a lot of ground to cover. But before I begin, I do have to say that the first part of this episode, once we get to the topic at hand, gets a little down. But I have often said on this show that theater is written about the most influential moments of the lives of the characters in it. And sometimes those circumstances aren't so shiny. So stick with it. I promise it will be worth your time. As a guest, I have my friend Robert Bogue returning to the show. Robert was last on the show for episodes 43 and 44, Inevitable, or Inevitable, about Patti LuPone's creation of the role of Ava Perone on Broadway. Robert is a Seattle-based theater artist, so when I found out about this story that we're going to talk about today, and that it ultimately takes place in Seattle, I knew he'd be just the person to have back. But, as I said before, plays are written about the most significant moments in the lives of the characters, and today's topic covers some hot-button issues of recent years and of years past. So, without further ado, here is today's episode, The Seattle Federal Theater Project and Spirochete. Robert, here you are again. I am here again, and, and and there are you. There are you there, again. There yes. we is. It, yeah. it, I I zoom. Therefore, I is. Uh, <laughs> so uh, so last time we talked, you uh, you were getting ready to do a Rocky Horror Picture Show, and it sounds like that was a huge success for you. And yeah, you, Rocky you, Horror Show. I I love. This is the I think the third time I've directed that show, and um, mm-hmm. it's always it's always popular. I think that. Yep. Um, this uh, this round, there were some uh, some new sensitivities that we were able to uh, address, and I think we addressed them very well <laughs> with the community. Um, but that's actually <laughs> something that'll lead 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 into what I what I want to talk about during your your show today about oh, yeah. all the good great topic everything. But um, yeah. it was uh, it was uh, the, the most 
popular show that the Red Curtain Foundation, I think, has ever done. Wow. It was completely sold out every performance, which they've never had happen before. Um, got great reviews. Uh, mo- and the biggest thing is, is the uh, the audiences and the uh, the cast really, really enjoyed it. And it, um, it brought people together in a uh, whole a whole bunch of new ways in a little in a little town <laughs> that little town of marysville washington yeah really yeah. um has a lot of uh has a lot of uh i, I guess changes they need to go through um and i think it's uh this like really that. helped them. and i mean that's that in a po- and i mean that in a positive no, exactly way. yes so yeah yes yeah so, oh, yeah man yeah so, so excited I, I, yeah and we just did ours here. You know, we just do the one performance a year, the Shadowcast mm-hmm. production. But Robert, every year there is a big surprise that happens. You know, okay. uh, I usually work with folks who are not uh, 100% trained actors. They're people who are like, I kind of want to explore myself. I want to see what's going on. And my first year, my riffraff practically did a, uh, I I think he had some clothes on by the time he was done, but um, <laughs> ended up in his time warp, ripping off jacket, vest, shirt, throwing them to the crowd. Uh, they all loved it. Uh, last year, my Eddie was played by a woman and mm-hmm. my Columbia was a woman. And at the end of Hot Patootie, uh, this wasn't, this wasn't something we practiced. They just planted a big fat wet kiss on each other. And the crowd went nuts. Okay. Nice. Here's my surprise this year, Robert. Okay. Uh, fans of Rocky Horror, you'll 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 know what I'm talking about here. You know, you invite the audience to bring their props, bring their you know their water guns and their newspapers, mm-hmm. and and w- where we perform, they say if you're gonna do that stuff, please bring no food stuffs. We don't want to find a moldy piece of bread under the stage three weeks later. You know, stuff like that. So so people are generally pretty respectful. You know what they did this year, Robert? The big surprise was that nobody in the crowd threw anything. (laughs) (laughs) They were so excited about holding their phone and screaming the callbacks because they're reading them off of the screen. They're reading the callbacks. Uh And they're just yelling. I mean, it was so freaking loud. A couple people were like, I have no idea what went on with the movie because I've never seen it before, but everybody seemed to have a good time. I remember looking at uh, some kids who brought toilet paper to throw Mm -hmm. and they just didn't know when the poor things, they had like this unraveled roll of toilet paper, this mound of toilet paper in their hands. And they're just kind of looking around like, what do we do? And I'm like, throw it. It doesn't (laughs) matter. Just throw it. Do something. They didn't do it. It was, that was my big surprise. Oh, I know how that, I know how that is. Cause I mean, we do the, ours is the, is the, is the live stage, uh, the stage musical. Mm -hmm. So it's the Rocky horror show. So um, it has, it has a lot of, different callbacks than than in the than the movie version right um or than a shadow cast and um so with that audiences kind of need some need some coaching or some encouragement because they're like (laughs) wait a second the actors can hear me i've been told my whole life that i shouldn't (laughs) i shouldn't scream at actors on stage so Mm -hmm. they 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 sometimes need some encouragement so sometimes you know at least to get them going you (laughs) know in the pre-show speech and then you know and maybe somebody you know bald and dressed in odd oddly 
colored and everything closed in the back might be yelling things through the whole show trying to get people to go I, so uh, i can't imagine that person awesome. that person doesn't look like you at all but uh, no, no. Uh, well no at, at the time looked nothing <laughs> like me of course but uh <laughs> well nothing like this right now i'll tell you that right now but um it's well, that's uh, awesome. no, it's a great show so so really that fun. red so that red curtain you're getting ready to do another one and this is another show that i've directed but i'm very excited to hear your spin mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah red curtain foundation um this year they're this this season they're doing something really unique and really brave especially for a small a small theater like that um mm-hmm. they're actually doing an entire season uh inspired by shakespeare love it um every single show is either a shakespeare show or a show that's influenced by shakespeare so they did something they did something uh, rotten uh earlier oh, yeah, okay. in the season they did uh they're doing a version of uh of RN, uh, of RNJ, um, mm-hmm. they did an, an, uh, a show just recently that was that was fairly well received. It was a an all female adaptation of Lear, which was really oh bold. wow um, yeah. So it was uh, very very bold. And then I am lucky enough to be doing all of Shakespeare's shows, all of them, one in one show. And that's the complete works, uh, the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged again, 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 because this is, I'm I'm super excited about this. This is a brand new, uh, a brand new version, a bridge version. Oh yeah. It was just, uh, just released, uh, less than a year ago oh that's awesome it's it's, so it's got some it's got some changes it's got again some some sensitivities uh yes uh, updated which Mm -hmm. um but it still keeps the most amazing spirit of this show and of shakespeare right Right. so um yeah so yeah but i'm very excited to be to to be directing this this relatively brand new version of it so oh that's so yeah, cool i'm, that's I'm so excited cool. so and i love how that group uh the reduced shakespeare company keeps keeps their stuff active and live and they go okay so we we at the time we were doing this uh this may have been insensitive and we uh, and we weren't really aware so mm-hmm. they're it's cool that they're kind of like hey we take it back we're we're gonna try again guys and try to make yeah. this better and try to make this work better so that that's really cool and yeah it is cool yeah it's very cool i think they've got like i think this is like the sixth sixth or seventh version now I yeah can't, i don't know which one yeah. so let's yeah, see i did it i did it in 2018 it was uh complete works of william shakespeare abridged revised mm-hmm. yeah this one yeah <laughs> so it, yeah it's exciting it's exciting mm-hmm. they, um always uh, always exciting to do uh to do shakespeare always challenging too so, yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and speaking of challenging yeah. That is a wonderful segue into the topic we are going to be discussing today. <laughs> okay. Now, I didn't tell you, I didn't tell you, but I do like to give my uh, guests something of a hint. And and earlier this week, I, I sent you kind of the hint to kind of mull over and everything. Uh-huh. But, but Robert, are you ready for this? Let's do it. All right. Okay. So Robert, I want you to give me an example of effective political theater. Mm. Okay. I can do that. Um, <laughs> All right. And, right and, and, and the funny thing is, is, is it's going to segue right back into what we were talking about. So, I know. Um, it's perfect. So, so, so for me, so, so for me, I think, I think that, that the political theater is, is multi-level. You've got, I think the very on the nose kind of um, definition of political theater where the, where it's, it's very, 
it's very straightforward. You've got like shows like like Frost Nixon, which yeah. uh, oh, talks man. which talks about the uh, about the interview that uh, the David Frost uh, had with Richard Nixon regarding uh, regarding uh, the Watergate scandal. There's shows like that. Then there's shows that I think take a take a really great um, kind of twist, and they'll either they'll either kind of use political motivations and political themes as the uh, as the main story but they're not kind of throwing it out there this is this is a debate this is this is we're in the white house you know we're in the we're in the palace kind of thing <laughs> so like things like uh like shows like you're in town oh um, yeah you're in town i think is a really is a really great one um and mm-hmm. if you if nobody's seen that you know that's uh that's just just really quickly that's about um satirizes uh you know capitalism and social irresponsibility and you know municipal uh municipal politics and things like that by showing this uh, this community where this one cor- uh large corporation is trying to control uh water output and water usage mm-hmm. by making everyone pay to use the uh restroom facilities pay to and pee it's yeah pay to pee exactly it's pretty, <laughs> I, I know i was i was like being really really clinical about that you're like yeah they're pay to pee no nope. um, <laughs> don't don't even go there robert we don't have time for this on this uh, on this type of podcast um so um but it's a and it's a musical and it's yeah. it's a comedy but it has some really serious moments oh and then of course you know there's you know i'll just say obviously Hamilton, you know, yep, um, yep, Hamilton, Hamilton jumps out there uh, is, is obviously um, very effective on, on, on so many levels. Um, yeah. And obviously super popular, but honestly, I'm going to go uh, again. And this is, this is no way to plug <laughs> my shell, but uh-huh, I'm going to, uh-huh. I'm going to drop back. And I'm going to say that uh, for me, the most, uh, the most uh, effective uh, is gotta go. We're gonna go. We gotta go back to, back to the classics. We gotta go back to Shakespeare. And for me, it's uh, Richard the Third. Oh man, honestly, yes. not. And I'm not. Yes. And I'm not just talking about the actual play as written and everything like that. I'm actually even talking about. It's a show that's that I've seen a- adapted so many times, and every single every single time, it's this really fantastic uh, highlight of the political facets of the, of the, of the family of the, uh, right. It's, and it's, it, again, it's just amazing. And I'm thinking, you know, uh, if you, if there's not a production of, uh, around that you haven't seen for a while, you can definitely check out the, the, the Ian McKellen. Oh, it's just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of set against kind of almost like a, a Nazi regime situation. I mean, they're really throwing yeah, that kind of very fascist, face. very fascist, mm-hmm. uh, fascist background. Yeah, and they really find that fo- that focus. Um, right. I think that, you know that's more that's more of an obvious one. I think that that right. um, even in the in the original the original version of you know, the, the, the the Shakespeare scripted version, mm-hmm. it's pretty straightforward. The politics yeah. of yeah of uh, how would you manipulate the system to gain to gain your own political advantage and your right. power struggle within this, within this family, which is, I think is what all the politics is about. It, well, even if you watch like the Olivier version, you know, it, 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 <laughs> it, it it's very Prince Valiant, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, 
it looks like it's taken directly out of a comic strip. And here's this man who just has a little bit of a funny back and he walks a little funny. And therefore, everybody thinks they just underestimate him so much based on just a, a couple little traits. And he's able to use that to such advantage. Yeah. And when we talk political theater, I think I think that's interesting that you came up with Richard III, because when you talk about classic plays, mm-hmm. you talk about plays that stand the test of time. And if Richard III wasn't still relevant, then it wouldn't be a classic play. Agreed. <laughs> so, Agreed. hey, people. We have to figure out that our uh, our sensibilities can be easily easily manipulated. There we yeah. go. I've said it. Okay. Well, and 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 talking about <laughs> and, and talking about that too. I think it, I think shows like this work on a whole different level too. And yeah. the show itself is great. It's great about this this manip- manipulating the power. But then, I think uh, a vital part of of uh, political theater and poli- you know politics in general, I guess, is is that. When Shakespeare wrote this, you know, he was he was writing this as a, you know, his his patron was the was Elizabeth, you know, I mean, he's, yep. he's writing for the so you would you would not want to write something that showed the, your patron in a bad light. Correct. Um, so, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of talk about how how so much of 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 Richard's actions and our, and our are so blown out of proportion the the you know the, his his physicality and all of this it's done to again manipulate the perception that people have and that is so much about what politics is you know i mean yeah. my opinion of, of any politician right or left i don't care who it is is you really have to question anyone that that spends that much money and that much time to take a job that will affect your life, your family's life, and 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 do all do all of the all of the bad stuff, mm-hmm. and not just the good stuff. And you you have to question people's motivation for getting right. You know why why is it they're really doing this? Is mm-hmm. it you know no no one is nobody right or left does it just because they think it's a great idea and they're just gonna, <laughs> we're just gonna help out. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's I've just, only ever wanted to help. I've only ever wanted to serve. I'm, I'm completely selfless. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and and I think a lot of people are. I'm not trying to to mm-hmm. rail on people that there's a lot of people that believe in their hearts that what they're doing is right, and that's on yeah. the right and left. And yep. I, I, you know, and yep. right, left, center, anybody, but have that much power, you better really consider, you know, really think about what it is you're doing it for and, and, and who yeah. you're giving that kind of power to. So, yep. yeah. Woo. Yeah. Gee, this, okay. is, this isn't a touchy subject at all today. Oh, no, no, I no, no. The, I got the easy one. <laughs> oh, wait, you want touchy subjects? Okay, yeah. here we go. Uh, Robert, I'm going to tell you a little story. Um, okay. In 1997, I got my first experience with a play that focused specifically on issues affecting the LGBTQ plus community. Mm-hmm. I saw a touring production of Rent in Minneapolis, and Mm. it blew my mind. Mm -hmm. For weeks afterwards, I was constantly listening to the soundtrack, trying to figure out which characters, which character was my voice and my personality, my looks. Like, what? what, Which one am I? I, Can I play any of these? Right? I even got a T-shirt from the merch table, wore it with pride, because I had seen 
an important play about an important topic, and it made me feel quite enlightened, probably because of how the play addressed AIDS with such candor and how the illness affected that small community. I was now part of that discussion. But that discussion was not too easily brought about in this country, was it? No, not at all. <laughs> okay. Not at all. Here's, here we go. Tough topics. In 1981, the New York Times reported on a rare cancer that was only affecting homosexual men. After that, the illness didn't get a lot of attention from media, the government, medical science, etc. Mm-hmm. Not I, you know, I don't want to get too extremely political here, but some things I read suggested that reporters like specifically stayed away from it. They didn't want to damage their careers or anything, even though they mm-hmm. knew it was happening. Yeah. If if actors were homosexual and nominated for an award, which demanded them to make an appearance on an award show, they were reminded not to bring their same sex partners. Yeah. Because of the camera panned over and saw you holding the camera pan, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. In, in fact, I heard about one who did. I can't remember who was on the Tonys. And in his acceptance speech, he thanked his lover who was sitting in the front row with him. Mm-hmm. And after that, blacklisted. No more work for that guy. Yeah. It's oh, it's terrible. I mean, right? it's um, it's it's terrible. And 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 all the progress we've made, we still the, the progress that the, 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 the even the theater community yeah. has made. You still have you still have a lot a long way to go, and I say that is you know, and I say that as a uh, as a cisgender male, I do not, mm-hmm. I do not understand. I will never be able to completely understand a lot of the struggle that marginalized communities go through. I won't. Right. No. I can support. I can do what I can to make sure that 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 these communities are always supported and always listened to, but I will never be able to understand. I'm not going to pretend to understand, No, but the only way to the, the only real way to, I think one of the only real ways to do that for these communities is to use the vehicle of our art and use the vehicle Mm -hmm. of of theater and music and film to shine a light. And it doesn't always have to be an accusatory, an accusatory light. You know, sometimes you get a lot more, uh, get a lot more flies with, uh, with honey. Right. Um, You know, so, so you, uh, so being true and honest to, to their stories, being true and honest to the characters and being sensitive to where they are, where they were and where they want to be, I think yeah. is, um, is super, super important. Oh um, yeah. But see, we so, are now at least at a point where we can talk about it. Yes. You know what I mean? I agree. Yeah. In the eighties, going back to this, there yeah. seemed to just be a stigma about the illness that despite people dying in large numbers, people just didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. And plenty, plenty of arts critics have suggested that, more wasn't said in the early stages because to talk about AIDS, you have to talk about gay sex. Mm-hmm. And that's not really something that's just common dinner table talk in the early 80s, I suppose. So, Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't do that. We don't. We no. Because if you, if you, if you talk about it, it's, it's real. And we don't. It's we don't real. Yeah. That. Yeah. No. It wasn't until 1985. When film star Rock Hudson died of AIDS, mm-hmm. that people then started to wonder. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rock Hudson was this handsome, rugged, romantic leading man, right? He was a friend of President Reagan. He couldn't be gay, right? Mm-hmm. Turns out he could. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it, yeah. I guess the same thing happened with Liberace, where, where people were like, huh? 
he's gay? And you're like, yeah. 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 <laughs> and it's not, and it's not just the LGBTQT plus community. You know, it's right. just listening to a story on NPR about um another play that I have loved and uh, a story, a storybook that I've loved forever is Peter Pan. Oh yeah. And Peter Pan is <laughs> I've I've done it once, I've been in it once, and um you know, I've read the story of the kid, you know, the Disney, the Disney version of the kids. I've read the original version of the kids, which is a little more graphic. Uh, yeah. It's got many problems. When you, when you examine it, it's got many problems as far as uh, the roles oh. of women, obviously the roles mm-hmm. of uh, the Native American, uh, Native Americans. Oh, yeah. And there is a really, uh, listening to uh, just NPR recently, there's a, there's a new version. It's just coming out. That's a new, it's going to be a new touring production. Huh. They engaged, and I want to say because I wrote this down because I want to make sure. Uh, Larissa Fast Horse, she's hmm. a uh, she's a, uh, a Native American author playwright, and they engaged her to uh, write the new adaptation. And huh. she talked about it, and it's and it's not just that she's trying to address the racial insensitivity. She was she really needed to address uh, how how women are treated throughout the play, right? But then an, an amazing, amazing idea of how to deal with um, the uh, the quote unquote tribe that's uh, that's always attacking, yes. and killing the yes, and um, uh, she she used she expanded the uh, the people the 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 individuals in um, in Wonderland by not just making them all from uh, a, a quote-unquote Indian tribe, but they are all from marginalized communities and communities that are, are and they are just, and the idea is that they are just in Neverland waiting for their chance to yep. return. So I just, oh, wow. I thought That's it was, a cool I am so excited to see it. But it's That's just a cool idea. Great, great, yeah, and it's just another mm-hmm. great example of, uh, the politics of um, of race and the politics of religion, the politics of mm-hmm. how things evolve and how they and how they change, and it's not always completely obvious. It's not always. Yeah. It's not always. It's but it's things that we have to consider, and things that um, it's it's about time we considered them. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let me jump back here to uh, yeah. 1985 and and Rock Hudson dying. Yeah. Uh, inc- incidentally, it wasn't until Hudson died in 1985, after a presidential election, of course, mm-hmm. that President Reagan finally publicly decried AIDS as a health emergency and demanded funding and research. And up until then, those afflicted with AIDS mainly just suffered and died. Yeah. Now, given all this silence in popular media, theater artists seem to be some of the first to make some noise about AIDS. And we can list a whole canon of AIDS plays here, but if we're really going to talk about the ones that open people's eyes, we have to talk about Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart and Tony Kushner's Angels in America. Angels in America, yeah. Yep. Now, I'll briefly summarize each because we have a lot more to cover today. Mm -hmm. Now, before he was recognized as a playwright, Larry Kramer was known for being an ardent gay rights activist to the point that a lot of gay people actually avoided anything Larry Kramer since his tactics were pretty revolutionary. And by revolutionary, I don't mean like wildly innovative. I mean like burn the system to the ground revolutionary. Yeah. 
But his play, The Normal Heart, actually began to turn the conversation in a new direction. And here's a clipping from an article that I found. It's a little bit longer, but I think it summarizes the play's cultural impact quite succinctly. In The Normal Heart, which opened off-Broadway in April 1985, playwright and activist Larry Kramer dramatized his own struggle to force politicians, doctors, and the gay community to confront a disease many were treating with skepticism or indifference. In front of a set on which the rising fatalities and the names of the dead were scrawled and updated with each performance, Kramer's crusading onstage alter ego Ned Weeks ranted, raged, and fell desperately in love. He was played by Brad Davis, the star of Midnight Express and Carell, who died of AIDS six years later. Wow. I, that bit about the names on the set, like, uh, you know, you're going, yeah, but isn't this just like affecting a few people? You go, no, no, here. The numbers are right here behind me. Yeah. Back at that same time, I remember uh, the AIDS quilt. Yeah, the AIDS quilt. Touring the country. And I actually remember it was about that same time that I, uh, when I first got into college and uh, I was going to Southern uh, Southern Utah University and mm-hmm. Utah, Shakespeare, yeah, Utah Shakespeare Festival had just done a, a production of uh, Waiting for Godot the summer before. And one of the actors, I believe his name is Larry Lott, was uh, in that show and he he passed away um uh, aids related uh illness Mm -hmm. uh, right after right after that summer wow he started to get sick very fast and i remember not long after that the aids uh the aids uh sections they they divvy out like sections of the AIDS, aids quilt yeah one of them i believe was came to salt lake and um Seeing uh, one of the panels with Larry's, uh, it was Larry's. Um, oh wow! Panel was it, it's an emotional, it's emotional experience. Yeah. Um, and I and I, I mean, I didn't know him. I didn't know him beyond having walked his path on stage, being at the, at the same theater. But I didn't, I didn't know that much about him. I mean, I knew what a talented actor he was. But now it's in your sphere. Yeah. Now, now it was yeah. there. It, so it couldn't be yeah. unreal anymore. And that's, yeah. that's, that's one of the problems I think with a lot of political th- political issues. Like if it's not affecting you right away, then what's the problem? Exactly. Uh, exactly. Well, it's affecting humanity and you are part yeah. of humanity. So um, here's another great quote about normal heart. I found the normal heart felt like a dispatch from the front lines of a war. Mm. <laughs> Angels in America had a similar effect. It was first performed in 1991, but was set just a few years prior in the mid-1980s. By this time, AIDS had become more of a household term, with media figureheads like teenage Ryan White appearing daily on the news until his death in 1990 at age 18. White had hemophilia and had contracted the AIDS virus or the HIV virus in 1984 from a blood transfusion, which proved that it now could be transmitted through different methods than what had been kept out of the papers just a few years before. White received public support from multiple celebrities, including Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. And that Ryan White Foundation is still out there and still helping people get all kinds of discounted or free AIDS treatment, which I think is really good. It's fantastic, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, back to Angels in America. The play is split into two parts, and it spans a total of seven hours. The story is told in several intertwining plot lines, including a young newlywed Mormon man who is unsure of his sexuality, a gay man who is left by his lover when he reveals his AIDS diagnosis, and a real-life politician who shook the moral majority from within when his AIDS diagnosis became more and more evident. And if I need to speak to the play's impact, besides going to Broadway and winning a ton of awards, 
By the time I had gotten to college in the late 90s, it was one of the required plays to know and read in the course of theater history. So I won't say that it was just theater that gave the AIDS crisis the focus it deserved, but it did turn a lot of heads. (laughs) After 1985, the conversation was happening. There may have been a lot of misinformation at the time, but it wasn't all misinformation. And frankly, the conversation was happening. Yeah. Which was great. You know, I mean, you still have people going, well, can't I get it from being in a hotel hot tub? No. no. Yeah. No, (laughs) but there's... (laughs) We have we have so much misinformation now. I know. It, I, I mean, know. no, I I agree. I think that I think you're you are absolutely right, and I think the the conversation needed to happen a lot sooner. Oh yeah. So, um, Robert. Yeah. Now that we've sunk this show to the bottom of the Pacific with uh, uh, good feelings, would you like to know about another time when theater may have changed some opinions about a health epidemic in America? What you mean it happened more than once? More than once. Wait, hold no. <laughs> no, I don't I can't what? Uh-huh. Okay. So okay. um the prevailing theory on this other uh epidemic is that when Columbus returned from the New World, some of the sailors on the voyage enjoyed some carnal relations with people they met in the New World. Mm. In 1495. The first official outbreak of syphilis was recorded in multiple locations across Europe, even though evidence of the disease existed on remains discovered from ancient Greek and Roman times. (laughs) But it's the sailors. It's the sailors. (laughs) It's the sailors. It's those sailors. The dirty sailors coming from the new world. (laughs) From the new world. Where all those indigenous women were doing the... Oh, my God. Yep. Okay. And since no one really knew the origins of the disease other than Columbus's voyage, and since political tensions were quite apparent at the time, the illness was known by several names. Originally derived from a Latin poem, it became known as the French disease in Italy, Malta, Poland, and Germany. The French thus called it the Italian disease. The Dutch called it the Spanish disease. The Russians called it the Polish disease. And probably my favorite of all, in Turkey, syphilis was known as the Christian disease. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow uh, wow i don't wow i see my my brain is immediately wanting to say things that i'm like no we no, no that's we gonna, should oh, not say this i am not gonna marginalize anybody else after everything i just said i'm like oh i now, have opinions <laughs> now there were probably a lot of reasons for all this finger pointing i mean i think the dutch and the spanish there was something about Habsburg rule and Catholicism and blah, 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 you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that's why they pointed fingers there. Um, but as I mentioned before, most countries in Europe and Western Asia were feeling uh, fiercely nationalist and like to spread ill favor on their perceived enemies. But also the symptoms of syphilis included the following. And this is probably like it was so obvious when people had it. So it was terrible and they could point fingers at that. Here we go. Here's the symptoms of syphilis, sores and lesions on the genitals, but as the disease progresses, the sores appear on different parts of the body, lumps that grow under the skin and can affect the appearance of the face. Like I saw a, a, like a, a bust of somebody that like, it was kind of Quasimodo in a way, like this, just this large lump between the eyes and the eyes had started to, one was higher than the other on each side of the face. It was very weird. Um, And the nose and ears are liable to fall off, 
as well as the genitals. Mm, that's not a good look. Yeah, that's yeah. Not a, not a good look. It, it even became so prevalent that people would sell fake noses. Mm. Like you could see a guy with a platinum nose or something like that, yeah. an iron nose, and you're like, ah, you got the SIF. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Now, since most people had at least a general understanding that syphilis transmitted through sexual encounter, those affected by it were considered sinful to the highest degree, regardless of how each victim contracted the disease. It can be passed on congenitally through birth. So a person could have it and not have done the not disease. Not have done anything, yeah. And, and so, but then people are still like, heathen! Oh, absolutely. Plus, because it was known to be transmitted sexually, it was not appropriate to speak about publicly. Yeah. Here we go again. Here we go again. <laughs> uh-huh. This was the norm all through the formation of the United States. Nobody talked about it. Even up to the 1930s, when syphilis was still affecting a large portion of the population, and while an early treatment had been created, it was not promoted as it was inappropriate to discuss. Oh yeah, and we, and we've come so far. We, we didn't do, we didn't do we didn't do uh, the the administration that was uh, in in uh, in in the office uh, when the whole uh, COVID started. Yeah, they didn't blame that on any specific uh, no, uh, no region of the country or race. Or no, oh, no, 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 uh, specific type of cuisine. Or, yeah, and we didn't. Yeah. yeah, we didn't. We didn't totally <laughs> deny it actually happened. No, we've mm-hmm. come. We are, mm-hmm. we are a, an enlightened civilization now. Aren't we, though? Yeah. yeah. So here we find ourselves in the 1930s, in the throes of the mm-hmm. Great Depression. Theater at this point had a pretty clear dividing line in America. You have commercial theater, and you have non-commercial theater. Mm-hmm. Commercial theater tended to be more appealing to the masses and didn't really like to rock the boat socially, especially when socialist movements had been happening all over the world in the prior few decades. You know, we don't want to, don't dabble in that. Yeah, no, no. Non-commercial theaters, on the other hand, were totally fine with challenging societal norms and introducing new ideas. Companies like the Provincetown Players and the Group Theater set the standards for not only what types of plays should be seen, but also the methods of acting that, air quotes, should be used. And as you may recall, the group theater dissolved partially because of a disagreement between Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler on how the Stanislavski method should be applied. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they were serious about their craft. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but this was also the time that little theaters were popping up all over the country, similar to the ones discussed in Chicago in my episode, Bernadine and Lady Precious Stream. These were places where struggling actors and playwrights could have their new works about new ideas heard. And if they got enough clamor, they could be picked up by a commercial theater, very similar to how plays sometimes will get to Broadway or the West End today. In addition to all of this, commercial theater seemed to cater only to a certain crowd, that which could afford it. Gee, nothing like today, huh? No, <laughs> nothing like today. Nothing like today. That actually does bring about something in, uh, that I have that I've always had a problem with uh, with Hamilton. Oh yeah, you, we mentioned that on the last show. Which I now, I now, I now admit, I really love Hamilton. I've, yeah. you know, I, I really, I really do. I understand, I understand what the thing, what everybody's thing is about Hamilton. I, however, do not think that I was wrong in any of my criticisms, <laughs> especially in the whole idea that it makes 
theater accessible. I think Correct. one of the big important yeah. things to make theater accessible is to provide an outlet so that people can actually go and see it so they can yes. experience it live. Not just, not just, you know, it's great to be able to pop on Disney plus and watch it, but there is much more of an experience of being able to go and sit in a, in a, in a darkened theater yep. and experience that energy live and, and to even do it more than once. And even in, even for me, real good theater tickets or even bad theater tickets are just not not possible i mean yeah. even this even in a in a town like like seattle yeah it's just not doable for people's for people's budgets that they really want to do it so so you know we we enjoy what we what we can through downloads and we you know videos and things like that but yeah it's not the same yeah and that's also that's also something that i think is actors have to be paid artists right, right. must make that money it's but, so difficult. But there's, yeah, there's a balance. There's a <laughs> yeah. balance. I'm finally going to, I haven't bought the tickets yet, but I've had the opportunity within the last couple of years, but Book of Mormon is finally coming close to where I am. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I have to go. Tickets yeah. are like $98 a seat. Yeah. My fur. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So back to the 1930s. Yes, I, I, I'm really good at derailing things. I'm, I am awesome at derailing. See, I have my fishing rod right here, and I can just <laughs> right back. But anyway, in the 1930s, you know, theater had that that air of snootiness. You know, it was mm -hmm. just like only the hoity-toities can go. Mm -hmm. But in the midst of the Great Depression, President Franklin Roosevelt put into practice the New Deal, a number of federally funded programs to help people help put people back to work. Part of the Works Progress Administration, from now on known as the WPA, the Federal Theater Project, from now on known as the FTP, ran from 1935 to 1939 and annually employed an estimated 10,000 to 15,000 actors, stagehands, playwrights, costumers, directors, dancers, etc., it also allowed the public to see performances for free or at least small fees mm -hmm. so that not just those who could afford theater could be allowed some distraction in darker times. That's awesome. I think that's amazing. Totally I, should have, I should have totally waited to say that until I let you finish your whole thought. That <laughs> no, made, that, it's so great. would have made much more sense. <laughs> <laughs> but we can see a time where it was actually a priority. Yeah. From what I understand, the Federal Theater Project took up like 0.5% of the budget of the Works Progress Administration, mm -hmm. but thousands of people got to go see stuff. Yeah. They were eligible, finally, to go see something. So several FTP theaters were established in larger cities all over the country, so people didn't just have to travel to New York to see theater. And from its very inception, the intent was to make sure that plays presented by the Federal Theater Project were not encumbered by censorship, as they would address issues of the day. The plan was to have a, quote, free, adult, uncensored theater. Wow. You're smiling a little grin on your face. <laughs> and obviously, yeah, this caused a lot of controversy, yeah. which plagued the FTP throughout its entire lifespan, mm -hmm. because censorship is such a tricky topic in this country. What should we allow people to see and talk about? Uh, a big part of the reason the FPT, FTP shut down was because critics were very concerned with 
not only how much time people of color were getting on the stages, but also just how close a lot of the plays came to promoting socialism. Mm. Mm. This, yeah, this whole slippery slope thing we used to, yeah. that, that, that people always use as an excuse. There's a difference, and, it's, and I think we go through it now. There's a big difference between uh, censorship and sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the second you start talking about about either, you're like, oh, well, now now it's 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 socialism. It's socialism is a is a is a scare tactic terminology right. used to shut <laughs> used to shut everybody used to shut everybody down. Yeah. Just my opinion. <laughs> well, the funny thing to me about that is here you're in the midst of the Great Depression. People are like, you know, selling their children so they can have some bread for the rest of the kids. Yeah. And, and nobody said, you know, this capitalism thing didn't really work out for us. Let's give it a shot. <laughs> yeah. Let's at least enter it into the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and it's it's let's enter it. Let's or or what. Uh, what happened is certain groups started to benefit from social programs, which oh, is no. technically that, but we don't talk, but we don't call it that. No. So we benefit from the roads infrastructures and we benefit from farm subsidies and we, and, and, oh, and certain groups benefit a lot from certain, uh, certain programs that, uh, that give money for just, you know, doing your thing. <laughs> yeah. But, um, <laughs> But we don't call it that Mm-mm. because when you because when you try to give money to somebody else that you don't like what their opinion is, now we can call that socialism. No, that's socialism. Now we can't have that. Mm-hmm. Now we now yeah. that's socialism. That's bad. But my social program that benefits me, oh, that's great. Yeah, it's problematic. I mean, there's that other thing there where uh you had people uh, having issue with people of color getting on stage in the federal theater yeah. project shows. One picture I saw, I want to say, I think it was directed by Orson Welles was a production of King Lear. And it was a fully African-American cast set in Haiti. Oh, wow. And you're like, Oh my God, <laughs> that would be so cool. But you know, you, wow. then, then you have people standing outside with placards saying, not my Lear. And you God, well, no. I mean, even now, um, I had a, a friend. She did a uh, she did a touring production of um, Little Mermaid. Yep. And um, she is of Asian descent. Yep. They're, they're freaking out about that. I think I heard somewhere that people were freaking out that um, that they had a I, someone saw a Santa in a wheelchair. Like, oh God! Ah, what? is what is wrong with people what is what is wrong with people that you can't that you can't even acknowledge this this idea but what what kills me is oh i can't i can't talk about santa because santa is actually oh mm. i don't you know i don't talk about that but <laughs> let's let's get let's talk about mermaids <laughs> and we'll say mermaids are imaginary friggin' characters and you're getting all up in everybody's face about who is actually what what a correct mermaid is it's a freaking imaginary character yep i could say other things other things about what i believe are imaginary characters and um but i won't do that on this podcast because i would really like you to continue your work online well, yeah and, exactly know. all i can say is i'm i'm glad we now have a black spider-man 
That's all. I Yay! Yeah. Thank, thank God for that. And he's so cool. Anyway. Oh yes, right. yes. Well, back to this whole non-commercial <laughs> versus commercial theater. Here we go again. Now, at the same time that many non-commercial theaters were gaining steam, colleges and universities across the country began creating academic programs for theater, which mainly conducted themselves as non-commercial theaters would. This allowed for students to have a much broader perspective of what their careers could offer. So it wasn't that they were just doing really popular musicals. They were doing, you know, Clifford O'Death's plays that challenged like, uh, you know, workers' rights and everything like that. So it was really kind of cool. So it's not really a surprise then that the heads or chairs of university theater departments were selected to run FTP theaters in their cities. This happened in Seattle. When the University of Washington theater director Glenn Hughes was picked to run the FTP in Seattle. Okay, so on the table, we've got political plays inspired by pandemics. We have a federally funded theater initiative that plans to show free adult uncensored theater. And we have one of these theaters opening up in Seattle. Robert, are you ready for the downhill slide of this roller coaster? <laughs> I'm putting my arms up now. I'm ready. I'm ready for the ready for the crest of the hill. So there you go. Well, you Menadites, I hope you can see where this is going. But if not, stick around. The end result is pretty spectacular. But before we continue, please feel free to reach out and tell me if you have a favorite piece of political theater. I'd just love to hear from you. You can use the Contact Us form at tridenttheater.com. You can also reach me through private message in the Instagram pages for either Trident Theater or Euripides Humanities. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a follow. However, let's get back to Robert Bogue and the conclusion of the Seattle Federal Theater Project and and spirochete. So one of the more popular types of plays performed in FTP theaters was known as the living newspaper. Have you heard of these? Vaguely, yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah. They were invented in America by FDP national director Hallie Flanagan. And while I could dilute this, I think this longer description from an article I found is the best description I can offer of what a living newspaper is. These plays focused on issues of national, social, political, and economic importance, the kind of topics that would feature in the headlines of newspapers. Flanagan created a living newspaper staff along the lines of an actual printed daily paper with an editor-in-chief, managing editors, reporters, copy readers, etc., and paired this staff of reporters and journalists with dramatists. Together, the living newspaper staff would investigate such issues as how and why New York slums developed or the state of utilities, both public and private, in Tennessee, and would gradually distill a, air quotes, dramatic piece from the facts. Mm. Interesting, right? That's kind of, yeah. So it's like what I thought of was like in the old days when you go to the movies, like you'd see 18 reels of different things. You know, you'd yeah, see cartoons, yeah. you'd see serials, but then you'd see the newsreel the news where reel, they, yeah. they piece together just a few things. And, you know, it's like 10 minutes and here's what the president is doing. And here's how the boys in the war are doing. And uh, here's what Miss America is doing. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's how you got your news. But this is the thing where it's like we're taking one topic. And we're focusing just on that, and we're telling you the news of that that's going on in the country right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, two of the more popular living newspapers, as uh, indicated in this description I just read, were Power, that was the title, 
And it was based on the Tennessee Valley Authority. Remember when that all flooded? Mm -hmm. And if it was as effective as it sounded, or if people were being left out, particularly those with less income. So interesting social topic. Let's talk about it. Let's at least Mm -hmm. address it. Mm -hmm. The other one is called One Third of a Nation, and it was about poverty. One Third of a Nation took its title from FDR's second inauguration speech in 1937, in which he said that one third of the nation was still, quote, ill-housed, ill-clad, and ill-nourished. So another one where we're like, hey, it's kind of an uncomfortable topic, but we do have to address it because there's a lot of people in in, in poverty right now, uh, yeah. despite despite everything we've done through the New Deal in the 30s. Yeah. But there was one more play that made some waves amongst critics and in legislative chambers. In 1936, Surgeon General Thomas Perrin announced his War on Syphilis and used as many government avenues as he could to help increase awareness and try to get people to visit their doctors about the disease rather than letting it spread. There were a few problems with this, however. At the time, a regular doctor visit would be about $3, which would be about $67 today. Okay, now that sounds pretty standard to me to go for a regular visit if I didn't, you know, even if I did or didn't have insurance. That's like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Check, yeah, yeah. Check, check my tonsils, my vitals, you know, how's my blood pressure, etc. Yeah. A doctor's visit to treat syphilis at the time would then jump to an average of $25, which would be about $553 today. And that's just per visit. So if you had to go back (laughs) multiple times to get treatments. And it's every, yeah. Yeah. And remember, we're we're living in the Great Depression. Yeah. Now, someone could visit a public health clinic, but apparently that basically outed a person publicly for having the illness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no hiding, I yeah, no hiding that. Yeah. I, I don't know how they would do that. You know, I mean, it seems fairly discreet whenever you go to a clinic anyway, but you're like, oh, you're here for syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be a great sign, sound bite on your. Uh... <laughs> Peter Rotterdam has syphilis. <laughs> Now seeing Peter Rotterdam. <laughs> the syphilis holder. Is that, is that you, sir? Sir? Bring your infected genitals this way. <laughs> oh, now. Wow. Some people saw the actions of the Surgeon General as something of an attack on decency, since, you know, we're not supposed to talk about STIs. Others just saw it as an opportunity to decry government overreach into private medical practice, which it wasn't. They're just trying to get people to test more. Like mm-hmm. you could go into a doctor and go, hey, I'm kind of itchy down there. And then, oh, oh, yes, well, you have the Sith. <laughs> it mm. could just be a talk. Uh, but this didn't deter the federal government. In 1938, a living newspaper called Spirochete was performed at the FTP in Chicago. The word spirochete, spelled S-P-I-R-O-C-H-E-T-E, means a specific type of spiral-shaped bacteria that are dangerous pathogens to humans, which can cause such maladies as Lyme disease and syphilis. Syphilis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Spirochete basically was a presentation of the history of the spread of syphilis throughout Europe and America, including the discovery of the bacterium that caused the illness and the development of the first effective treatment, salversan. Now, by the time the play that was first performed, salversan had already been in existence for 30 years. It was invented in 1908. The play went up in 1938. 
but its use was not nearly as prolific as the spread of the illness. However, no one knew just how prolific it was because no one was really willing to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's a quote that I got from an article. A culture of shame and silence surrounded the disease and prevented the spread of accurate information. Many still assumed that the disease was a punishment for sin or that it was only contracted by the lower classes, air quotes, perverts, or African-Americans. <laughs> wow. And f- from what I understand, the records did indicate that African-Americans were more affected by the disease. But I would suggest that since hardly any white people were being tested by choice, I have a feeling the numbers were skewed in an unfortunate way. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, another quote I found about the shame around the illness. The word syphilis did not even appear in print media until 1937. Wow. <laughs> Don't even print the word. Yeah. Then people wow. will ask about it. How do you spell that? What does it mean? <laughs> So in any case, spirochete was massively successful in Chicago. And that's not really too much of a surprise because their state legislature had just passed a law about mandatory premarital syphilis testing. So before you got married, you had to test. But many thought that didn't go far enough. They wanted prenatal testing as well. So if you're pregnant or if you want to get pregnant, you got to test. It's funny, there's a treatment sitting on the shelves for 30 years, and they're like, no, test, because we got to see who's got it. Hmm. Spirochete was then moved to several other cities with FTP theaters, one of which was Seattle. Hey, look at yeah. that. In Seattle, syphilis had killed at least 50 people per year through the 1930s. But by the time Spirochete was performed in Seattle in 1939, reporting had improved, but not by too much. 847 cases were reported in 1931, and 1,232 were reported in 1939. So I guess gradual growth. But Mm -hmm. between those years, the population of Seattle was between 365,000 and 368,000. So, oh, there's only 847 people who have it out of 365,000. We're probably okay. We're probably okay, yeah. Well, plus, you know, it's a it's a port city, so it's those sailors. Again, it's, it's, all those, this, it's, it's all just this. the sailors. So oh. just stay away from those sailors. And of course, most people in Seattle simply assume the disease not only spread amongst the lower class prostitutes and, of course, African-Americans. Yeah. However, in the fall of 1938, two bills about mandatory testing started circulating throughout the Washington State Senate with no official actions being made on them by the time that Spirochete premiered in February 1939. So the, the discussion was happening. And here comes this play about it. The Seattle FTP reached out to the Ladies Auxiliary of the King County Medical Society to be a major sponsor of the production. The society did sign on, but also wanted to make sure that their involvement wouldn't deter people too much on the subject of mandatory testing. You know, they they didn't want to feel like they were coming down too hard on anybody. Like, mm-hmm. get, get yourself tested. No, they exactly. Just, yeah. Just subtle suggestion. It's for the betterment of all, right? And all involved wanted to make sure that the play was not the equivalent of a dull PowerPoint presentation where the presenter just reads the slides to the audience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Wanted to make sure it was at least fun (laughs) (laughs) so the play was rewritten in a few ways in the original play an early scene depicted legislators debating the points of the mandatory testing legislation in the seattle production they rewrote it 
so that the characters who opposed mandatory testing would be subtly less likable to the audience. (laughs) (laughs) I I couldn't tell. Subtle. (laughs) Subtle. (laughs) All I could imagine was a guy standing up in the the stand is like, and I don't like mandatory testing. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to kick my boy. You know? <laughs> I brought him along so you could all watch. <laughs> yes, I was, uh, excuse me, I was late because I was eating a cat. So, <laughs> I, so no I testing. Vote no. <laughs> Bring me another cat to eat. I'm going to work hard this Sunday and not go to church while I'm eating a cat. <laughs> So subtle, yes. subtle, subtle. subtle. <laughs> yes. Oh man. So they also made sure to make it relevant to Seattle so that names and places were changed to remind the audience that this was actually still happening in real time outside the theater. So, you know, if they mentioned a street, they would now change it to a street name in Seattle or something like that. Or if they, they mentioned a, a, a sports team, they would say the sports team is in Seattle or something like that. Mm-hmm. And to that point, the ending was rewritten. In the original one in in Chicago, uh, they talked. They celebrated the passing of the legislation, and now mandatory testing is happening. Now, since the two bills had not yet passed in the Senate, the ending was rewritten to depict the legislators casting their votes, and then the curtain closed before a resolution could be determined. Oh wow! Right. <laughs> so, like, I guess wow. we'll see. And again, this was meant to remind audience members that there was still time to affect action in the real world. The questions brought up in the theater, and it's up to the audience to find the solution in the real world. Choose (laughs) the early choose your own adventure. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. The week before the production opened, the Ladies Auxiliary reserved 150 tickets at a special rate of 85 cents to be used throughout the run. The FTP distributed 35,000 handbills throughout the city, mostly to doctors' offices, hospitals, and public health clinics, and they hung 3,500 posters throughout the city. Opening night, 150 doctors were in the audience, and throughout the run, WPA employees could see the play at a special rate of 10 cents per seat. So over the run, WPA employees comprised one-third of the total audience. Make it accessible. You'll get people in the house. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they were federally funded. So it wasn't like they had to make or break. Yeah. The results is a quote. Spirochete was the biggest hit the Seattle Federal Theater Project ever had. Almost 3,000 people attended the productions, nearly 1,000 more than attended any other Seattle Federal Theater production at the Metropolitan Theater. And the show grossed just over $1,000, which was $400 more than the Seattle FTP made on any other production. Nice. Right? Nice. And incidentally, uh, the Metropolitan Theater stood at 415 University Way from 1911 to 1954 when it was demolished. It is now known as 415 University Street downtown, and the Olympic Hotel is there today. Oh, okay. I know where that yeah. is. Mm-hmm. I know where that is. However, the ladies' auxiliary was not entirely impressed with the production, <laughs> claiming that the play was still a little too informational and not dramatic enough. How do you dramatize the history of civil <laughs> I mean, I have ideas. <laughs> yes. 
would you like interpret an interpretive dance? I <laughs> see you but over I'm, there. You, you, <laughs> tours de day, tours de day. You're the syphilis. Tours de day, spin, 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 spin. <laughs> oh yeah, and the ribbon in the spiral shape. Yes. It's the spirochete. And much like in Phantom, your uh, your genitals will fall off like the chandelier <laughs> at the party. That's at the end. That's in the act one. <laughs> Boom! Right Bonk. on the stage. There you go. Splop. Uh, yes. And I hesitate to say maybe a sex scene about syphilis is probably not appropriate. So and and a musical number. You've got the syphilis. <laughs> oh, but speaking of music, apparently there was music in the production. Okay, the ladies auxiliary also described the music played as ear splitting, but in their regular publication, the bulletin. They at least acknowledged that other audience members seemed to enjoy the production more than they did. <laughs> Those ladies are just, just, they just don't get, the, they don't get syphilis. Okay, they just they don't, don't get don't syphilis. <laughs> There's just something I can't quite put my finger on here. Wow. This must be for the kids. The kids get wow. it. The kids get it. Those, those, those young youth, those youth. Uh, My day. No, <laughs> the Seattle Post Intelligencer claimed that the mandatory testing seemed a bit presumptuous, but they did print the word syphilis and they did print the names of prominent members of society who were in attendance. Wow. That's a big deal. That's a, that's yeah. a huge, that's huge. Mm -hmm. The next month, March 1939. Both bills passed in the Senate, requiring mandatory premarital and prenatal testing, and they were scheduled to go into effect in January 1940. Wow. Affected real change. I'm not going to say it did. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's directly responsible, but come on, a month later. It's coincidental. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> the success of Spirochete encouraged the Seattle Federal Theater Project so much that they began developing another living newspaper about the local logging industry called Timber. But the National Federal Theater Project dissolved in 1940 before the production could come to fruition. Today, syphilis can be cured with penicillin, but new strains have emerged, which may not be cured that way. Yeah. And that is my story for today on Spirochete. Wow. That was okay. I dig, you know, I come into this and I'm like, I'm like, oh, well, I like this. You know, I have this play. I have this idea that's a political thing. You give me a whole lesson and I don't have to pay back any student loans. Oh, to, man. Uh, because after this lesson. So that's I'll take donations. Feel free to <laughs> send donations. I mean, this is valuable shit here, Robert. No, this is cool. No, this is cool. <laughs> Especially I, I, reinforcing why Seattle is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I started to research it because I just heard about the, the the Chicago play and I started looking it up. And then I saw this thing is like, it's the biggest show that the Seattle Federal Theater Project ever had. I'm like, mm -hmm. this play about syphilis. You're telling me this play about syphilis was the biggest show they ever had? Okay, I'm in. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, and it, 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 yeah, no, you're right. It does. Uh, affecting, trying to affect change through, through these new ideas. I mean, it's, and it's what, you know, it's what theater, I mean, art, you know, visual art and everything has done the same, same type of thing through a lot, through years. And sometimes it's subtle and sometimes it's very overt and very, uh, very right in your face. Mm -hmm. And it just depends on who is, what the message is. And it depends on what's needed. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. it needs to be kind of in your face. Yeah. You know? 
And, you know, there's a couple points to that that I would like to bring up. I'll, I'll say the negative one first. I think it's so interesting how this country consistently tells people that arts don't really matter. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, we could do without them, but it's nice to have them, I guess. You have plays that affect people on a grand scale, a massive scale, and they mean mm-hmm. so much to so many people. The thing is, I'll bring up Hamilton, because now you've got people who think that they are 100% scholars about, uh, you know, the inception of America. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hey, it it's a catchy show with some catchy tunes and everything, and it's flawed in a lot of ways historically. Yes. But, but you're paying attention. And I yeah. abs- I absolve a lot of the things because by the end of, of the play, the last line of the play is who lives, who dies, who tells your story. So it's like, that's up to you then to understand the perspective of the story you're being told. Yeah. You know, I mean, at the end of Hamilton, we go, wow, I had no idea he was such a great guy. You also have to remember that he got into a ton of duels. He's basically on the $10 bill because he forced uh, market capitalism on America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Carnegie yeah. basically uh, made sure his face was on currency. Yeah. And when he originally proposed what we should go to next, he wanted a lifetime president. I'm sorry, that's a monarch. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like we just fought this war to get rid of that monarch to get our own. Yeah. So we're like, the message is skewed a bit. Yeah, we don't, we don't talk about those things in the play. Yeah, no. Well, and, and it goes, and that goes back to it. Go, it goes back to so much about about your point of view, and you've got to consider not just your point of view, but you really got to consider the point of view of the source material. Again, yeah, just going yep. back to going back to uh, Shakespeare, realizing that that like histories and things like that yeah. were written to make a certain group look good. It was, yep. it was, you know, they're. There's a there's a, a lot to it. There's a lot of rich characters, a lot of a lot about about theater and everything that you take from that. But you always have to consider who is telling the story. Yes. But the biggest thing, like you'd said earlier in the in the discussion, is that it brings about ideas. It makes yes. you think. And yes. I I don't know how many times you know, I work. I also work with visual artists in my in mm-hmm. my job. And uh, a lot of times, working with uh, working uh, with those artists as we're as we're we're putting up artwork, or there's there's a new a new piece available for an audience. So many uh, so many viewers will say, you know, I don't I don't understand that. I mean, I don't I don't necessarily like that. Why is that art? And yeah. honestly, the reason is because it gets you to ask, what about it? Do I not like what about it does not appeal to me? And then in, in the is it makes you think, what do I like? Yes. You know, what is it about other art? What is it about other theater, about other music that does appeal to me? What does touch me? What messages do I take from this? And what can I what can I learn from you know from any sort of theater, any sort of uh any sort of visual art, anything like that? So the discussion is the thing, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. You know, I guess the, right. you know, the, I guess that the whole, that, yeah, the, 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 the plays, the thing to catch the conscience of the King. Um, <laughs> it, you know, and I know, I know it's, that's Hamlet. It's not Richard. I know that. <laughs> um, but it is that thing. It's, it's, it's 
it's what do we take away? Right. You know, we, right. You know, we may, don't like it, do like it, but we think about it. And that's yeah. the most, that's the most important thing. So here's, here's the stat though, on the flip side of that coin that I okay. will end today with. Okay. I, I was just talking about this with somebody the other day. I'm still staggered by the fact that fewer people voted in the 2004 presidential election than voted for American Idol that year. Oh, yeah. It's staggering and depressing. Yeah, it's staggering and depressing. Now, the number of votes, like a person could call in and vote multiple times on American Idiot or, or uh, American Idiot, American Idol. That was subtle. I know. <laughs> I'm eating a cat. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you can only cast apparently one vote for a presidential election. So, you know, the numbers are obviously a little bit skewed in that way, but I'm like, but what are people paying attention to more? Mm -hmm. They're paying attention to the stuff that affects their soul. Exactly. They're paying attention to that and they're being driven by the theatricality. Ironically, we don't need, we don't, <laughs> uh, ironically, we don't need necessarily need theater. Some people will say, I disagree. Yet they are so driven by the theatricality when yeah. it's when it's presented to them as truth. Mm -hmm. Oh, this this is the truth, not the not the truth that you see with your eyes, or you mm -hmm. see it's theatrical. I can just remember when people lost their damn minds when Obama wore a tan suit. Oh yeah. <laughs> Speaking yeah, of theatricality. The, yeah, mm -hmm. what the hell? What the hell? What, <laughs> this this country just started right downhill. That's what's led to that's all That's it. That's, that's what's it. led to all that damn brown suit. That tan Don't suit, you so, appear yeah. in seer sucker in front of me. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. So every single every single thing you were talking about, about uh about syphilis and all of those, I just I'm like, you could just change that to COVID and I know. Change the words to COVID and all of all of the <laughs> blank bullshit. Uh, sorry. Oh, oh no. Ooh, ha, ha. I said the word. Ooh. I said a word. Um, I hope you can edit. Nope. Um nope. Okay. <laughs> like I hope you I hope you don't edit me. I hope because that's because that's because that's, that's I won't, it's bad. wrong. It's, yeah. Anyway. I um I think it's it's sad that we've in certain areas we've really we've really recognized where the problems are but yeah. then based on yeah. certain people in power in politics coming around in full circle we haven't made any progress we're still right where we're talking just mm -hmm. about it's a it's a different version of the same thing which is really sad well so. you know the the weird thing about it is i haven't seen a lot of covid plays yet no i mean I've seen a couple, but they existed before COVID. Uh, the Humans by Stephen Karam with all of these people kind of locked in a basement together. Mm -hmm. um, that one. And and the same time I saw that and I saw people were doing new productions of it, I went, oh, they're really talking about the effects of what the pandemic and the lockdowns had on us. That's kind of interesting to use that piece of theater in that way. Mm -hmm. Same time, I see a friend of mine on an Instagram story post just a single headline. And it says the lockdowns in the pandemic were ineffective. And then their little caption, oh, who would have guessed? I'm like, <sighs> yeah. 
just go ahead and get out there, uh, you know, four years ago and tell me that you, you felt comfortable in supermarkets. Okay. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. And I don't know. I think people can politicize anything, but at least there are yeah. brave playwrights out there who will stand up and and write some things and actually yeah. get the conversation going. Yeah, and I know, and it definitely this 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 obviously is is, uh, is focusing on playwrights, but just artists in general. Yeah. Thank God we have art. Thank God yeah. we have art that's willing to stand up and uh, either subtly guide the conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or grab you by the shoulders and say, "Do you do you understand what's happening? I love do it. you understand? Take a look at this." So, yeah, yep. thank, thank God for artists. Perfect. <laughs> well, did you guess right? Did you think this was going to culminate in a federally funded successful production of a play aimed at getting people to have themselves tested for syphilis? I was surprised too, but from what I understand, this is one of the closest examples of an attempt at a national American theater that we've ever had. At the end of the tale, I'm just glad to say that the Roosevelts were such fans of theater. I want to thank Robert Bogue for his contribution to this episode, and I want to thank you for being, like the Roosevelts, fans of theater. And if you're interested in the Federal Theater Project, then make sure you're subscribed. I have some more content about the FDP coming down the pike. But for now, I'll sign off. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater, ending another episode of Euripides' Amenities. I'll get another episode in your ears in two weeks, and I'll see you in intermission. Ooh.